Welcome to the Ridley College Chapel podcast. Our mission is to equip men and women for God's mission in a rapidly changing and increasingly complex world. For more information, visit ridley.edu.au. And the text will be uh, on the screen as well. But if you feel free to grab your Bible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 to 23. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the, the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loved, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or power or ruler or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things were together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on, on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemy in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through that to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusations. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I pour have become a servant. Hear the word of the Lord. You might want to keep that passage open or open it up if you haven't already. Susie's kindly worked us through a recap of last week's images of salvation uh, so that we've already got a sense of what we're in for this week. But let's make it numerically easy. This week, one tool... Two purposes, three applications. 
So we've already done a quick sense of why last week I was brandishing a kitchen implement that would get me into trouble on most international airlines. And the idea is to remind us that sometimes we take just one or two images of salvation and try to force them to do all the ministries for which God has provided as a vast and productive toolkit. So at great expense of the management, this week I have been allowed to borrow a friend's hodger. Now, I must apologise that this is a small and weedy version of a podger. This is only his backup podger, uh, one that he doesn't really care for and that's not all that flash. Because full on, you're never really allowed to touch a tradie's primary podger. It's such a personal item that each plumber crafts by hand to his own specifications. So when a Jedi Knight finishes his apprenticeship, he has to build his own lightsaber. And when a plumber graduates from the, into the workforce, he crafts his own personal podger. Or if you're lucky, he crafts two and you get to borrow a spare for sermons. Now, the point of a podger is that it's the perfect tool for a specific job. Now, all you well-heeled blue-collar workers out there, what does a plumber use this for? Hint, not picking his teeth. If you're working on industrial air conditioning, one of the things you have to do is to bring big pieces of ductwork together. You've got duct A and duct B, and a podger is the right tool for the right job. You can lever it through the holes in the flange at the end of one bit of ductwork, then lever it through the holes in the other bit of ductwork, lever them together until they're aligned, and then all the holes are aligned so you can run the bolts through. As they say in the hardware advertising, you need the right tool for the right job. And so it is with salvation. We're not just left with a single butter knife and trying to pry open a drawer that's stuck or to re-grout the bathroom tiles. God gives us a whole range of tools to describe his central mission of saving the universe. So this one tool reminds us of two purposes that we're focusing on last week and this week. We have such a range of tools to work with and when we investigate the images that God's equipped us with, we're reminded that we're not just saved from something, but we're also saved for something. And the exact sense of what we're saved from and for will vary depending on the image that we focus on each time. So one tool is an illustration, two purposes and three applications to keep in mind. These are the same three applications we had last week. How will these broader images help me to better understand and praise God for his work through Jesus? How will these broader images of salvation help me to better care for believers and especially for unbelievers who don't know this story of salvation? And how will these broader images of salvation help me to better nurture myself as I persist in the Christian journey? One tool, two purposes applications. Well, when we turn to today's passage in Colossians, no doubt it's the middle paragraph that we've heard most often. It's often rightly the focus of our attention because it contains lots and lots of our core Christology. And even though then, if we look carefully at that paragraph, we find that Paul and Timothy have been selective from their toolkit of Christological praise. They've picked out just the specific attributes that the Colossians need to hear. So whatever theological challenges the Colossians are facing, they need to hear that it's in Christ that all things hold together. 
And that's because he ranks before all things. He is the head of his body, the church. Christ holds this position of unique authority because he's the image of God. And indeed, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the Son. So it's a great paragraph for understanding select highlights of who Jesus is. And because this centre paragraph shines so brightly, the surrounding paragraphs can fall into its shadow, dimmed by comparison. Sometimes you hear sermons only on that central paragraph and the surrounding paragraphs get lost when they have more to say about what Jesus has done. So it's exegetically responsible not just to let one paragraph dominate over the others. And when we do look at these surrounding paragraphs and give them due attention, we find that here in a wider passage that is rightly celebrated, there are mentions of a surprisingly wide range of images of salvation. If you take nothing away from this morning's service, notice from the passage, from Lonnie's discussion of what happened immediately after his conversion and still today, that there's room for growth in the Christian life. Some of our mental pictures of salvation have us pray the prayer. We cross the line and then, and then, and then that's kind of it. In many churches, there might be nothing that happens after you pray the prayer and cross the line. I'm pleased to say that lots of churches do offer some kind of discipleship program, but I'd guess that that often might run for you know, six to 12 months after somebody becomes a believer. And Paul and Timothy give us the impression here that there's room to grow as a believer for six or seven decades after that point. We catch this in their earlier Thanksgiving if we look back to verse 3. They don't know the Colossians personally. They're writing to a church that's been planted by Epaphras. But Paul and Timothy are thanking God because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love you have for all God's people, faith and love springing from hope. And in verse 6, the gospel continues to bear fruit and to grow throughout the whole world, and it continues to do this among the Colossians themselves ever since day one. And so the apostles are still continuing to pray for growth for them in verse 9. We continually ask God to fill you with knowledge so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and to please him. How does one live worthily and please the Lord in every way? By bearing fruit in every good work growing in the knowledge of God, being further strengthened for great endurance and patience and giving thanks to the Father. We might notice just with that last line, uh, once more we find a passage, I'm discovering more and more of them throughout the Bible about giving thanks. I think it's something that shows us up as Christians when we compare ourselves to most other cultures around the world. I wonder how much the comforts of the Western world have made many of us have made me to be really an entitled brat. In a conversation over the weekend, someone candidly put it into words. I've done so much for God, when will he do something for me? And I was rather taken aback by that arrogance, but also painfully aware that I'm often not far from thinking along those kinds of lines. I'm just more well-heeled at saying it out loud. But alongside Thanksgiving, notice all of those other images related to growth. The apostles are excited by these signs of growth. If there are gardeners in your world, they'll love this time of year. Already we can start to see there are trees blossoming. You can see leaves appearing on this tree out here. And my favourite garden guide, Google, tells me that this is not supposed to be happening until September. 
And we cultivate gardens and orchards, not just for a single season. We want them to keep recurring over years and years. And certainly that's the plan with fruit-bearing trees. I don't know many horticulturists who are satisfied with just one season's produce. You might notice our apostles giving an invitation to keep growing in the knowledge of God. Many of us here on a Tuesday morning tend to be among the, the nicer, younger things at college. But if you hang around, particularly on a Thursday, you'll see some of our more, uh, is the right word, grizzled or long in the tooth, people who've been here for three or five or eight years. And if you ask them, they'll assure you that even after three or five or eight years, they're a long way from having reached any kind of completion in their growth in the knowledge of God. There are so many more ways to keep growing, to keep bearing fruit, whether we're newer in the faith or even older in the faith. You'll find amongst the bookworms that you see sitting to your left and to your right that there are three, I think, here who are more athletically inclined. And certainly beyond this room, you'll know young adults at church or even youth who can fit that category that we call a gym junkie. And there'll be others in your world who are more broadly interested in sports or other outdoors activities or staying up late at night watching a certain soccer match. And the Bible is keen to communicate with them as well. So whether it's strength training at the gym or skills training at a favourite ball sport, the Bible was written to cultures that knew about exercise. The illustration in verse 11 has a physical parallel. Paul and Timothy celebrate that the Colossian Christians are being strengthened with all power so that they may have great endurance and patience. Perhaps you're someone who loves a training regime. The Bible calls you to persist in such discipline. You've heard Jess's announcements at lunch saying, come on Thursday mornings and join the run team. See if you can match her streak of where are we now, 167 days in a row? Something like that. Now, for some of us, this language of discipline is a dirty word. And at least on paper, we could acknowledge grudgingly the value. We might not be mad keen athletes. I haven't made it at 7.30 on a Thursday morning yet. But if we have any respect for our bodies, we at least recognise we should give some thought to what we eat, some thought to activity in our day. And indeed, I dare to suggest, perhaps we might start to appreciate it. You drop a couple of hundred grams, you get some more of those endorphins flowing, you discover that couch to 5K is a little bit easier than it was last month. You discover your body's got a bit more endurance than you had last year. And this is what the apostles find for spiritual exercise too. It's not in this particular passage today, so don't go looking for it, although there might be chocolate for those if you find the magic word that I've missed. But elsewhere we find suggestions that regular spiritual disciplines can grow into persistent spiritual habits. We are saved from lethargy, and we are called for endurance. Here's another thing that this particular bookworm has never quite appreciated. People who go to gyms or work out on the athletics track do this to damage their existing muscles. You go to the gym, you get hot and sweaty, you sit on public transport on the way home expressly for the opportunity of hurting yourself. And then as your body seeks to repair this self-inflicted damage, your muscles grow back a little bit stronger. And the Bible has plenty to say about this role of self-discipline and even of the pain that God can put his people through as part of their training. It's one of the weaknesses with the mindset of the current Western church where I think 
We're falling into a protective mindset of comfort at all costs. We don't really have a category for God as a personal trainer, especially not for one who might put us through pain in order for gain. Still, we do find that there's this wonderful idea of a physical fitness angle and this extension of this physical fitness angle that we can gain mileage from in many ministries. And indeed, all this sporting imagery has great ministry mileage. The Bible often paints the Christian life with travel metaphors. I've happily lifted off this, the free book table, a fresh copy of Pilgrim's Progress, because it's written built on a number of Bible metaphors. Jesus talks about the narrow gate and the difficult road that leads to life. Paul writes regularly about training and running and persevering so as to win the prize, the crown of life. Hebrews uses lots of pilgrimage language as believers migrate towards their final destination. Similar imagery in the book of Revelation. We're reminded that an early title for Christianity was The Way. And only a prosperity preacher with his own chauffeur is going to be able to tell us that this way is some easy, comfortable dawdle. The Bible invites us to a grand journey for sure and one that's a long-haul marathon that requires training and perseverance. So keep your eyes open to this wide set of images that runs through Scripture. Keep your youth group's eyes open as well. There'll be some there who are gung-ho athletes and who understand it. Not everybody works that way, but the Bible is also interested in weaklings who prefer to stay home with their asthma inhalers and playing Dungeons and Dragons with kindred spirits, not looking at any mirrors in particular. You'll find that there's no mention of fellowship in Colossians, but it's a word on hand for the nerds in your care. Despite what we hear in churches, fellowship doesn't especially mean the snacking you enjoy after church or chapel. It's a shared quest together. Theologians and youth leaders around the world owe a great debt to J.R.R. Tolkien and to Peter Jackson because the fellowship of the ring is the right imagery. Nine assorted strangers, including apparently frail hobbits, who throw in their lot together to change the world and who get borne up on eagles' wings. Fellowship is inviting people into not a nice cup of tea and a biscuit, but inviting them into a huge and dangerous challenge. And then we start to realise there's all sorts of language that we might think is innocuous running through the Bible that invites us to this task of exercising or questing or similar. In verse 10, the NIV has a common rendering of a common idiom. Here and elsewhere, Paul and John speak of living a life, and the original language is really the language of walking through life. So here in Colossians and elsewhere, the apostles are concerned that Christians not just walk, but walk worthily of the God who has set them on this quest. So please, if your church or your evangelistic contacts know anything about walking groups or about cycling teams or about sporting clubs or about gym membership, the Bible is full of tools for getting people intrigued by the journey, getting them started on their way and training them to persist through to the finishing line. Now, for all your indoorsy image, so all the physical images uh, and all those wannabe questing kinds of images, the Bible does leave room for those of us who are still really more indoorsy. 
some of you are at college, not entirely because you want to be here, but because your ministry setting or your international mission requires a formal qualification. And the Bible speaks quite a bit about studying. Here in verse 12, the language is of God qualifying us for our achievements, giving us the piece of paper for what we need. And here is the qualification for inheritance amongst God's holy people. We delved last week into the Bible's myriad family images of being adopted as God's sons and daughters, of sharing the inheritance that's gifted first to our brother Jesus. We also saw that invitation to be part of God's holy people, his cherished collector's item put on display before the other nations to marvel at. And the images just keep piling up in this paragraph. Two weeks ago, Kate preached to us about her Tasmanian adventure, camped on the edge of a cliff overnight and then rejoicing at the coming of daylight. And apostles like Paul and John and Peter celebrate how God brings us to inherit the kingdom of light, to walk in the light. We have been rescued from stumbling in darkness. You might catch here undertones of spiritual warfare as we're rescued from the kingdom of darkness, as we're transferred to, reassigned into the realm of Jesus. We have been resorted from Slytherin into Gryffindor. Every time as we sing Amazing Grace, I was blind, but now I see. And for the traditionalists among us, we do need to recognise happily a fleeting mention here of slavery language, that we have been redeemed from our chains. And here that's explained as forgiveness from our sins. Then that middle paragraph talks mostly about Jesus and my shock and shame, we're basically ignoring Jesus himself today, but looking at what he's achieved. Verse 18 repeats some of those images we've touched on already. We are transplanted into the body parts of Christ's body, his church. We stand to inherit his resurrection from the dead. But then Paul and Timothy are keen to move on to one more dominant image that runs through the rest of that paragraph and to the end of today's reading. The fullness of of God dwells in Jesus in order to bring about all kinds of restoration. If you're facing tension within your family, if your friend is at conflict at work, if you know people whose are nations at war with other nations, we need to hear that God's fullness in Christ is designed to reconcile to himself all things, making peace through his blood. And here is a topic that we can take and will resonate throughout Australia and around God's world today with the Ukrainian or Sudanese or Afghan or Yemeni, whether immigrant Australian or indigenous. Our society is so keen to talk about reconciliation. Here is a rich vein to tap into. We've just wrapped up the Gama Festival. We're waiting for the Voice to Parliament referendum. I hope you've heard about Community Hour at college this Thursday, a chance to dialogue further on the various factors concerning that referendum. We have no shortage of human reconciliation to facilitate, and it's not hard to find here and amplify here an ideal image of salvation. Many Australian cultures don't care at all about having offended or alienated the gods, but heaps of other nationalities, whether those living overseas that we might serve, or those visiting Australia that we might serve, they understand directly what Colossians is saying. Verse 21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies, but thanks be to God, now he has reconciled us 
If you know someone who, for whatever reason, is afraid or ashamed of being acceptable to God, introduce them to the gospel message as presented here. Yes, our evil behaviour and sinful status does disqualify us from friendship with the holy God. Yes, we might explain that using the language of a judge passing verdict and paying the price, but we might also explain it in terms of reconciliation. Paul and the whole Bible celebrates that by the death of Christ's physical body, God now counts us as holy, which means suitable for God's presence. So in those moments when I don't feel worthy for God's presence, I need to read and remember how holiness is spelt out here. Without blemish, no matter how much Satan tempts me to despair. Free from accusation, despite my guilty conscience. Being qualified to enter into God's presence is such a valuable illustration of the gospel message, one which we can praise God for in his work in Jesus one which we can use to care for believers and unbelievers, and one through which I can better nurture myself to persist in the Christian journey. If you want to hear more in this vein, if you want to hear more about this theology and passion and praise for Jesus bringing us closer to God, 150 hours in the letter to the Hebrews is on the timetable for next year. And in most cultures, even in our own, the biblical response to reconciliation is a celebration with food. So the Bible is full of banquets, whether they're reconciliation parties or wedding feasts. So if you've got foodies in your world, then the Bible also wants to speak to them. In Scripture, God grants us more than one tool with at least these two purposes and three applications. If you want an invitation to classes next year other than just Hebrews, hear this summary from Mike's theology textbook. Salvation is more than a mere fire insurance against hell. It's more than just a ticket to a heavenly paradise. Take a deep breath as we hear that in the scriptures, salvation can mean deliverance from enemies, physical danger, death, disability, demonic powers, illness, poverty, injustice, social exclusion, false accusation, shame, and of course, rescue from sin and its consequences. What a grand kaleidoscope of images God gives us in the gospel. What a vast toolkit God grants us to work with. What a rich palette of colours from which to paint. Continue in your faith, established and firm. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This gospel, this rich kaleidoscopic palette, is the gospel that we have heard. It is the gospel proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which Paul and we have become servants. Amen.